Weekend Berra was recorded on the country of Bunurong Bunurong people and on the countries of other traditional owners. I would like to pay my respect to elders past and present and recognise the strength, resilience and capacity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Welcome to A Weekend Birder, a podcast that shares birdwatching stories and advice. I'm Kirsty Costa, and this episode is going to be super practical because Ricky Coglin is here to help us level up our knowledge and skills. Here is how Ricky discovered her love of birdwatching. I guess you have to go back to, uh, right back to my childhood um, when I lived in uh, one of the, the far northern suburbs of Sydney and it was still kind of like we had the remnants of an apple orchard in our backyard and we had a creek running through the property. We had lots of bush around my school and we had little bush remnants along a little riparian scrub running along the, the creek that ran through all of the properties in our street. You would get birds in there and we would get frogs and you know, we would still, you know, there were there were platypuses living near our school. So it was a kind of place where a bit of a nature-loving element would be struck up in our lives. And then my father had aviaries, and in those aviaries he would keep zebra finches and diamond doves and peaceful doves, and he had um, king quail in there. And so I can remember standing in those aviaries as a young child just being surrounded by these gorgeous little birds. And this just gave me a great, I guess, a great affinity and love of birds. Um, as as any child would. So I had a great thing about nature. My first book was about dinosaurs. So I didn't even start with a little golden book. It was straight into what is a dinosaur. So yeah, that was my first book. And I was into shell collecting, fossil collecting, rock collecting, and um, yeah, just feather collecting. I guess as I um, went on, I guess I was around about, I don't know, 14 or 15. And I had been for some years a member of it was like a children's museum group at the Australian Museum called the Junior Discovery Club or the Junior Explorer Club and then that kind of like morphed as you got a little bit more closer into teenage years into the newly formed Australian Museum Society and they were having this getaway I guess for, for five or six days up to Brisbane Waters National Park where we were going to assist Dr Harry Recker who was a, a great bird man so we were going to assist him in his research on uh, pollination of banksias in Brisbane Water National Park. So we all, we go up there and we camp and, and I'm blabbing on about dinosaurs because this was the time when we were starting to discover that dinosaurs and birds were pretty much the same thing, that, that dinosaurs were endothermic and they had developed, you know, feathers and, and everything that birds became was already prototyped somewhere in the dinosaur lineage. And, uh, so, you know, I'm you know, babbling on about this and I can remember that we had been up there pulling basically a lot of New Holland honey eaters and white-cheeked honey eaters out of mist nets there and, you know, taking their morphometrics and he was banding them and we were scribing. And I, I mustn't have been able to shut up because I can remember him putting the New Holland honey eater in my hand and saying, there, look, here's what you do. Hold this. <laughs> and he showed me how to take all the morphometrics and band the bird and we got into, you know, extraction 
reduction from nets and all of this. And um, I, I remember looking down at that bird and thinking, I'm going to do birds. You know, I had an, an interesting kind of childhood, I guess, um, teenager in the 70s, and I, I got down in the Royal National Park a lot. And uh, so it was birds and it was reptiles and it was just being out in the bush. And But I uh, come around about um, 1980 uh, and I was 21 years of age, um, I was going to resolve a problem that I'd been growing up with all my life. And uh, this was, I, I was born transgender. So I thought, well, you know, <laughs> now's the time. I'm at the legal age now. I can do something about this. So I, I went off and, and did all of those things that you do. And that kind of like derailed my life a bit. It, um, I found myself all of a sudden doing a lot more around the fitness industry and I, I got into the fitness industry. So I'm working in the fitness industry and uh, became an athlete and went on, had an athletics career. And actually in the middle of that, I got outed <laughs> and this became like a whole global thing, this story about what we've got a, we've got a person who's had a sex change um, running in women's sport. And, uh, but that all worked out very well. And, and the people who run, you know, track and field or athletics in Australia were very good. And, you know, we went down to the Australian Institute of Sport, did a lot of tests and they said, well, you know, you're pretty much the same as everyone else. So on I went. After picking up her binoculars again in the late 90s, Ricky's birdwatching future was sealed by a chance encounter with a Scottish man during a walk in Royal National Park on Darrawal country in Sydney. This random stranger was searching for lyrebirds and asked for Ricky's help. For some reason that day we were having trouble finding them and then we see one that runs across a trail and then up a creek. And so we decide we're going to go after it. So we're clambering along and jumping along boulders up the middle of this creek and then we come to a spot where the creek opens into a big pool. There's a lovely big log across it and there's a lyrebird crossing the log. So we hunker down. And we watch this bird do the whole thing. So it goes right into the whole practice display routine, you know, doing that beautiful veil tail thing and jumping up and down and the plink call and what we now call the Star Wars gun and the, and uh, a lot of mimicry. And this guy, this Scottish dude, he's just like going, wow, you know, this is the best day of my life. And I said to him, well, look, it'll get better if you look to your left. And he looks to his left and there's this, you know, little kind of like puggle, like quite a young echidna, <laughs> sort of like right next to him, sort of like snuffling around and trying to bury itself in the insufficient um, soil and leaf litter beside him. And he was just like gobsmacked. And so he went back to Scotland and told all his friends and pretty soon I had quite the bird-watching tour business going with people coming over from England to uh, come and see lyrebirds and try and track down a puggle, I guess. Fast forward to the early 2000s and Ricky finally fulfilled her childhood dream of going to university to study birds, which she did at Charles Sturt University. Midway through her studies, Ricky was offered a role as a warden at the Broom Bird Observatory on Yoruru country in Western Australia. Never have I been more me than when I was at Broome. There it was, the whole thing was birds, the whole thing was nature and you could just totally embrace it and just be the bird person that I was and that I know most, you are and most of the people who are listening are, we're just bird people and you could go up there and just totally embrace that. But I had to come back and sit, finish uh, my, my university. So I came back to Sydney and hung out my shingle as a nature educator and um, avian consultant. Ricky runs courses and workshops for birdwatchers 
and she is an absolute whiz at helping people identify little brown birds that are also known as LBBs. You might also hear birdwatchers call them little brown jobs or LBJs. Birds are the most prominent of the birds when you walk through any forest or woodland on the uh, east coast of Australia and uh, even getting out into the outback among some of the woodlands and even into the sparse areas, uh, it's little brown birds that are quite prominent still. And I think when we talk about little brown birds, we're talking about thornbills, gerigones and your scrub wrens are the ones that are most commonly associated with this, so there are others amongst the group as well. What I find particularly fascinating is that we've got all these different species that all look so much alike, all living side by side, or generally many of them living side by side. And how they do this is quite fascinating. It's it's a form of resource petitioning, uh, which means finding their own niche in a fashion that lets them live side by side, but gain any advantages of living together. We see this very, it's very easy to see this if we look at a group of shorebirds. You, you can see them walking across a mud flat and there's all different lengths and shapes of bills going on and they're all living side by side enjoying the benefit of a big flock when there's predators around. Uh, but at the same time, they can be shoulder to shoulder taking slightly different prey in slightly different ways. So it's very caring and sharing and no one is competing with each other. This is very valuable in a forest for little brown birds when you've got you know marauding you know, goshawks and sparrowhawks, even you know, other species, you know, Carawongs can be in there. And, you know, so there's a lot of um, predatory birds that will, will take these, these small birds. So being in numbers, there is an advantage to that. And I imagine there's other advantages in numbers for these birds. Each of them will forage at a slightly different level in slightly different ways. In, in this way, nothing is competing with each other. And how they live their lives and how they do this is quite fascinating to me. And how the, the, the moments and ways that these birds have evolved and this speciation or this creation of new species has taken place is just so fascinating to me. Ricky says that all beginners should learn bird topography, which is basically understanding the key features of a bird. Bird topography looks at the bird's feathers, its head, beak, wings, legs and feet. And it also involves the much smaller details, like its lore, which is the area between its eyes and its nostrils. This is where binocular skills are really important, and you can get an introduction to binoculars in Episode 5 with Anthony Overs. Here's more binocular advice from Ricky. Making sure that your binoculars are pre-focused. So we know in the environment that we're in where we're seeing most of our birds. So I find it really useful to, um, when I'm walking along a trail, to every now and again just make sure my binoculars are focused on whatever distance they need to be, depending on the habitat and the conditions and the birds I'm looking at or looking for. And uh, so often that's around about 10 metres, maybe a little less. So walking through a forest. Yeah, as soon as I see a bird, the focus is going to be practically on it or so close to it. And then you might only see a little bit of it and then it'll bob and you'll get a little bit more and and a little bit of a picture will develop and you might not get much more than that. But once you know the various, that the code for, for, for cracking the little brown birds, 
That's all you're going to need because for most of them, you only need to know one thing. What's the eye colour? What's Do they have a fronds? Have they got striations in one spot or another? Eyebrows? Has it got a moustache? You know, white brow scrubber in straight away. You might only see a little shoulder of something bobbing around in amongst the ferns and you'll just get those little sergeant stripes on the shoulder and you know you've got a, a, a white brow scrubber in or technically they are little uh, chevrons on a uh, on the bird's allular and you can go and look that up if you're just sort of starting out with your birds but that produces these little sergeant stripes on what we'll call the shoulders of the, the white-throated scrub wren but even seeing a little moustache on it's a dead giveaway so yeah learning those kind of things like seeing for instance um your, your brown thornbill right with those heavy striations on that paler breast and when a lot of people struggle when they see a striated thornbill because it's suddenly they're seeing these striations again. Let me quickly jump in here and explain what striations are. Basically, they are bands of colour usually occurring in parallel lines, kind of like irregular stripes. Sometimes they can be quite bold and thick. Other times they can be quite fine and thin. Sometimes they even look like V-shapes, like they do on the striated thornbill. Okay, back to you, Ricky. And you've just got to learn that, hey, these are finer and they're also lighter and they're across the face and even onto their cap. And they've got a little copper cap when you see it in the right light, whereas the brown thornbill has a little brownie brown wash to the fronds or forehead. The thing you've got to watch for, though, with that bird is if you see a little striated thornbill and it's got a bit of dew on it or it's been raining a little, those striations will start to look pretty big like a brown thornbill. So always beware the damp bird. Uh, so it's kind of like that, that you, you learn one or two features. And I have a little ebook on the subject. And in that, there are the bird is broken down by terminal tail bands or little bands on the end of the tail or eyebrows or these kind of features that you can quickly group together and say, this is one or the other. And it comes down to usually one, one diagnostic uh, field mark um, and sometimes two to be able to pick your, your little brown birds. So the thing is start gradually and just build your, 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 your bank of knowledge up on them, but always begin by learning the topography of the bird. As a beginner bird watcher, I've tried to identify a bird by the colour of its feathers or the colour of its eye. When it comes to little brown birds, though, this is definitely not the best method. Ricky has a great explanation about why. I don't often look at the, the the back of the bird because a lot of a lot of these birds we call brown. They do seem brown in certain lights, and in other lights, all of a sudden, that looks more olive or yellow or buff and or cream. And it's and this can be a problem with eyes as well because in a in a rainforest where where a lot of these birds are you know congregating, uh, in that dull light, an eye that can be quite red out in the sunlight becomes a black eye in the forest. And a white eye might not seem so easy either. Uh, sometimes eye size is good, like brown thornbill and striated thornbill, which are the, the curse of so many birders. The brown thornbill just has this really big eye, and I think it's described um, by Danny Rogers in the, um, the Australian Bird Guide as cute. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's a fairly new scientific term, but it is a, a big cute eye. The impression is cute. Um, and when you see, say, a, um, a large-billed scrub wren, well, that bird you can definitely pick by the fact that it it's just the plainest bird in the forest. So it's, it's practically one of my favourite birds, but it is just the plainest bird. But just with this bill that is 
as soon as you see that bill, you think this is nothing else. This is a you know, large build scrub ring. There are lots of binocular brands out there. Ricky wants to tell us about her favourite pair. My favourite binoculars are the Leica 10x42s. My reason for that is that for the money, you get a lifetime of fantastic viewing with as good a view as you're mostly ever going to need. Uh, They're very sharp. They uh, have minimal colour aberration. You do get what we call a little bit of fringing in certain light conditions with these binoculars. So if you're looking at a heron with a, a grey, you know, slightly cloudy background or a, 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 a buzzer sitting on the top of a tree with a grey sky behind it, you will get that little bit of that purplish outline on it. And that is about as flawed as they get. Otherwise, um, these binoculars can give you a lifetime of bird watching satisfaction. Ricky's favourite bird book is The Australian Bird Guide. It is very complete in its descriptions. It also has wonderful hints and notes and stories about birding and birds, and it's very comprehensive. It covers everything really well. Most of what you're going to want to know about birds, except for their calls, which for that I go to eBird. But recently what's come out is the Compact Australian Bird Guide by the same team, and this is fantastic and it's really well devised. If you want a field guide, something to throw into your backpack or keep in the glove box of the car, the Compact Australian Bird Guide. It is super lightweight. You can hold it in one hand. It brings across all the wonderful illustrations from the Australian Bird Guide into this book with, I think, improved maps and just simplifying the text and sticking to all the basic birds, not getting into things that are offshore or vagrants or anything like that. And one of the things I really like about this field guide, or both these field guides, is the illustrations. They're very diagnostic. They don't try to be too artistic because when you look at a bird, you're looking for at, a, at a series of diagnostic features. That's what are very prominent in the illustrations in these books, so they're fantastic. Mine, which is uh, Where Song Began by Tim Lowe. And uh, this is a tour de force of the story of Australian birds. I just love it. It is, he is a true raconteur of the world of nature. It is a great read, a ripping read, and I think everyone should, uh, who loves birds should have a copy of this book. And finally, Birds of Eucalypt Forests and Woodlands, their Ecology, Conservation and Management by Keast and Wrecker, Ford and Sanders. And, of course, Wrecker is the Harry Wrecker who many years ago put the New Holland Honey Eater in my hand. And this is a fantastic book for anyone who just loves getting out in the woodlands of, of, of Australia and, and birding. And they, it is basically a collection of papers, uh, research papers, that have been sort of rejigged a little bit to work into, a, into more of a, a book context and make them a little more accessible for the ordinary mortal who wants to learn a little bit more about the stories and the ecologies and the behaviours of Australian birds. Links to the books that Ricky mentioned can be found in the notes for this episode. Hey, how awesome was that? Thank you to Ricky for taking the time to share her incredible stories and knowledge. You can find out more about Ricky and other Weekend Birder guests by visiting our website, www.weekendbirder.com. You can also share your tips for watching and listening and identifying little brown birds on your favourite social media platform. Just search for Birdapod and you will find us there. 